Today's TripCast is presented by NRG Energy. At NRG, we're changing the way people think about energy. Learn more at NRG.com. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Hi, I'm Brian Rosenthal, a reporter with the Houston Chronicle. And if you think listening to Patrick Svitek on the Tribcast for half an hour is tough, imagine living with him. Seriously, I can't count the number of times I've been woken up by deafening hip-hop music emanating from the shower. And now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Brian, for that wildly entertaining version of the intro. I can't wait to hear more. Uh, I I'm always reminded that you are the the member of the relationship who watches The Bachelor. Every time I try to bring it up, Patrick's it's like, "No, true. that's Brian." There's plenty of research on Brian that could be shared. Yeah. Exactly. All right, we'll wait for that at the end. Uh, this negative. is Emily Ramtai here with the Tribcast for the final week of September. I'm joined by CEO Evan Smith. You, you know, it actually occurs to me now that you are the Felix Unger of that. <laughs> Relationship. Do you know who Felix Unger is? I don't, no. Oh, that is, that snap! Is, Neither do I. Lost on younger snap! Viewers. The young great. people that, that don't know who Felix here. Unger is. Who's oh, Felix yeah. Unger? We're leaving. Come on. <laughs> Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Who's Felix Unger? Who is Felix the odd Unger? He was the neat, neat Nick in The Odd Couple. Oh, my God. All you right. both fired. How do you not know who? I mean, he, he has an excuse. He was born in like 1990, but what's your excuse? Two, 92. I was, oh, I was born in 1981. Was it a lot earlier Felix, than that? Um, you don't know who Felix Unger is? No. This You're is, off the Pulitzer now you, I was oh. going to say, now you do sound like my husband. This is our. You don't know who X is? Every like film star. All right. Do you know who Melvin Douglas is? No. Why do people Political listen reporter to this Patrick Svita. <laughs> I know. I mean, if we're looking for the millennial subset, Evan, you're just aging us. Felix Unger. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. That's all you yeah, have to no, say. Yeah, that's you all you we covered the banter earlier. I'm ready to talk about other stuff. <laughs> He's ready to talk about it. Get me out of here. <laughs> He's ready to talk about hip-hop in the shower. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Uh, for those of you who missed the Tribune Festival this past weekend and what an awesome weekend it was, we've got a lot of political news to catch you up on. Uh, let's start with Saturday's interview of Ted Cruz by one Evan A. Smith. I'm going to reveal something. Oh, you are. Uh, Cruz had made national news not even 24 hours before his interview by endorsing Donald Trump, something we were unclear whether he'd ever do. Um, give us the scoop on that, Patrick Philson. I mean, Evan has some kind of news he wants to make, so maybe we should let him. Will, but... sure, okay, there, there have been some signs in, in recent days that he was potentially warming up to, to Trump. His campaign, former campaign manager made some suggestions that he was pleased with the kind of campaign Trump had been running recently. He Trump tweeted had... one nice thing. <laughs> he tweeted one nice thing. That counts for something. <laughs> Trump had come out and support, or at least Trump, via a statement from his campaign, had come out in support of this internet freedom fight that Cruz has been waging um, so far unsuccessfully, I believe, in Congress. And so there were a few signs then that kind of culminated in Friday afternoon. Cruz put out a statement where he effectively endorsed Trump. He said he would vote for him and he encourages other people um, to vote for him. And uh, as you saw in Evan's interview and in subsequent media appearances, you know, Cruz seemed to be hanging this endorsement on, um, you know, number one, the fact that, uh, you know, he never ruled out supporting Trump and he thought about his where his conscience leads him to. And at this point, according to Cruz, at least his conscience leads him to doing everything he could to stop Hillary Clinton. So he ultimately kind of wound up in the same 
with the same justification that pretty much every other Republican <laughs> has come up with, which is I view this as a binary choice and I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. And then to another extent, uh, I think he based it on the list of judges that Trump released um, a few days earlier. These were judges that Trump had promised to appoint to the Supreme Court. And Cruz, I guess, had exacted some kind of concession where Trump and his campaign promised that if elected president, he would only pick from this list of judges. But we can, I'm sure we all have thoughts on whether Trump can be trusted to actually do that. In well, office. that was, in fact, the point I asked him. He said he committed to this in a binding list. And I said to Cruz, you know, when Donald Trump in the past has been in a committed and binding business, how's that worked out? You know, you're yeah. having to make an assumption that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. The, the reality is that everything that Cruz said uh, before uh, he sat down with me and while he sat down with me, that was his justification for voting for Trump, um, was all in evidence two months earlier when he declined to endorse Trump at the convention. Right. Well, I, 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 I'm doing it because I made a pledge a year ago. Well, you had made a pledge... 10 months before the convention it didn't make it right. well I, I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president well you didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president at, at the convention either right. right what I mean what political calculus changed I, I, I think I think the epiphany tighter. I think the epiphany here was polling I think I think the presidential race got a little bit tighter I think Cruz's numbers um, his favorables unfavorables cratered um, but but he's a but 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 but, but. The brand, the Cruz brand, was a principled conservative, right? And I think he damaged his brand. If you believe that right. that part of what was Cruz's appeal to people was this was a guy who was not going to go along with the conventional wisdom, with the establishment, not do what everybody else said. He was willing to be the the fart at the dinner party or the fly in the punch bowl. He was prepared to be the unpopular actor on principle and he up until just this like everybody point. else. He wasn't prepared to yeah. be. He was aching to be. I mean, right. you know, well, I, 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 I think, as you know, that he made two mistakes. He made a mistake when he didn't do the endorsement. False. You lost the race. Suck it up. <laughs> False. Jump in there. And then he set down a reason that he was a principled guy that he then violated. So he lost a bunch of his supporters the first time. He lost the rest of them the second time. This reminds, me, come of, around, this reminds me of an old debate this is we a bad, had. This, this is bad brand This management. was dumb. This, this reminds me of an old debate we had at Texas Monthly. One time we were considering, when I was the editor, putting the butthole surfers on the cover. The idea was we wanted to appeal to younger readers. And so we sort of had this conversation <laughs> briefly. This was back. Do you know who the butthole surfers are? Yes, back I am. What year was this, 1993? <laughs> And, and so the conversation very quickly got to, if you put the butthole surface on the cover, you're going to lose all the people who you had before. Who don't but like the not, word butthole. But you're not going to gain all the people who you think are going to suddenly be swayed by your pandering. Cruz had an opportunity to- At to, least you're admitting it was pandering. To, right. uh, oh, please. Why would I put the butthole surface <laughs> no, on the Just to be clear, to we here, don't yeah. pander at the Texas <laughs> Tribune. No, not at all. Um, uh, Cruz had an opportunity to go in for a dime, in for a dollar as far as the non-endorsement of Trump. It was- he demonstrated that he was willing to go down with his principles. If Trump lost, Cruz, Kasich, Ben Sass, and a handful of other people who refused to get on the Trump train were going to look like they had been willing to lose on principle and with integrity, but in fact, they turned out to have been right. And had Trump won, Cruz would have suffered the slings and arrows of having made the decision. Now, he gives up the conservative principle brand, but I'm not sure that the people who are Trump people necessarily think about Cruz, oh, good, I'll be with him now. I think that right. Cruz oh, yeah, got, absolutely. I think that the people who are Trump people look to Cruz with contempt and derision and pity now. And the people who were Cruz people and who were really sort are of like, standing by decision are like, I mean, you even see, saw social way. media traffic among, you know, among sort of moderate conservatives and even Democrats who said, you know, a few for a moment I started to like him. I, I got to tell you something. The, the thought that I had running through my mind sitting with Cruz on Saturday was, 
he does not want to be here. He does not want to be in this place. He does not want to be voting. At TribFest or at this place politically? Well, nobody wanted to be at the TribFest. No, uh, he he did not want to be endorsing Trump. I I think in terms of the calculus you mentioned, I think— Cruz, <laughs> on, on principles, Cruz knows that Trump has not changed on principles since the convention. In fact, Trump, if you look at some of the policies he's talked about since the convention, has become an even less conservative candidate. He hasn't right. become more conservative. Right. And so clearly a political calculation was made. The polls are tightening. We need to get on this train now. And then after that political ca- calculation, Cruz and his team thought we need to have something to point to for our supporters to make this at least look marginally principled. And quite frankly, Donald Trump got the better end of that deal. All he really had to do, and this is almost in Cruz's telling, is put out a paper statement on the Internet Freedom Fight. It wasn't even a statement Which by seems Donald like pretty Trump. Small, that's pretty it was, small. It was beer. a statement by a policy advisor. Right. And then he had to put out the judges list. Well, well, and in fact, and all he really did on the judges list, if you remember, he initially put out a list of yeah. 10 or 11. Then he added a, a, a bunch, and now it was up to 21. And he committed, if you believe that Donald Trump commits to things and, and honors that necessarily. He committed to pulling his names off that list. Well, all he really did that made Cruz change his mind was put Mike Lee on the list, who, A, is no guarantee to be an appointee of Trump should he win, and B, hasn't even endorsed Trump himself. And has said he's not interested, I, I think. Right. right. Look, look, and therefore, you're, and then the conscience question, Sometimes you know, you're endorsing symbol- somebody who trashes your wife and your father. Well, well, so, so everyone, I'm, I'm somebody's son and I'm somebody's husband. But they are forgiven. Right. I mean, I, I look at that and I go, you told me my wife was ugly. You told me my father killed Kennedy. You questioned my citizenship and my eligibility to be president. But I'm forgiving you. And by the way, you haven't even apologized. Right. This is the best deal Trump has made the whole, the whole race, perhaps. Holy crap. He built a wall and he got cruised to Time out. There are actually a bunch of... For a change, there are some right. great questions coming in on right. Facebook. Who's uh, Felix Unger? All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a question from Dan and a question from Daniel. Uh, I'm these also, where's people. Danny? Right. Hey, Danny, uh, where's your question? Will Trump's list of Supreme Court nominees influence the race, and will Cruz's endorsement make any significant impact on undecided voters? No. No. Comma, no. no. Yeah. No, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I mean, I think this just, you know, obviously it helps the image of Republican unity, but that's usually not an image that the nominee cares about this far into the Cruz general. is now as big a player in this race as Rick Perry is. He's just in the background. And he's not even dancing anymore. Bummer. <laughs> so, yeah, we want to ask uh, that one more question yeah. from Marshall. Do you think John Kasich, who Evan had on stage this weekend, will endorse Donald Trump? No. Another, uh, the triple no. I absolutely think not. And part of the reason is Speaking that he, seems, the, yeah, he seems less than interested in doing the thing that is popular or the thing well, that will carry but, favor. And he, but he so did from, Cruz. He looked from the you know audience view that I was in uh, to be completely at home with what he where he was. He's, he looked like the most relaxed man in politics. Yeah, he, he does not give a crap. Do, right. do you buy the fact, I mean, wh- where do you think sort of Team Cruz is on this? Because during the Tribcast, live Tribcast on Friday at the festival, we had Eric Erickson came, was on stage, right. and he said he was receiving text messages from Cruz staffers, you know, just... While sick, he was on stage? No, right before, you know, after the Cruz endorsement of Trump. Basically, he said, I, got, I was getting all kinds of text messages from his staff, you know, disgusted with the decision. Suicide hotline. I mean, do Seriously. you, do you right. buy it? Well, I saw that. I finally saw the famous Jason Johnson picture of him with his head in his hands. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, I absolutely believe that Team Cruz is divided. I think if there is divide within their their ranks, uh, it is among the people who are 
newer to Cruise World, but who have quickly been able to get Cruise's ear over the past several months and throughout the campaign. This is like the Joe and then, Hallball wing of the yeah. Cruise campaign. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They've come back four years. <laughs> they, they may have been pushing more for the endorsement. And then there are the kind of true believers, people since day one who've been uh, involved in his political rise, who I think right. were more anti-Trump endorsement. Mm-hmm. I'd clearly put Jason right. in that category. Right. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the simplest explanation is the, is, is the right explanation. What was the predicate for Cruz's endorsement? What compels him to What was to the do predicate this? for Cruz's endorsement? Reince Priebus, Dan Patrick, and Michael McCall each throwing some version of chin music high and tight on Cruz. And I think the one that was the most threatening, I think the clear and present danger was McCall and, still, I, and remains McCall. I am going to say here in front of God and everybody, Mike McCall is not running. I don't believe it. I think the whole thing is a big head fake. And I don't think Cruz is vulnerable. Okay. Well, I, well, I agree with all of that, but I feel like what he's what McCall has said and just the noise he's made, even if it's unsubstantiated noise. But you is, told me that can, Friday night when you were in Tyler, Joanne Fleming was throwing major shade. Yeah, which which at Mike meant, McCall, which made something or meant something to me in terms well, of how well, they viewed but, him. But I, yeah. but I actually think that they the Mike McCall, I think the Mike McCall threat, candidly, no disrespect to Chairman McCall, is a fake threat. I don't think Ted Cruz is vulnerable. You cannot run at somebody in a Republican primary in Texas from the left, and you cannot get to the right of Ted Cruz because he is literally standing up against the wall. There is no room. It's going to depend on what Cruz's finance people do the people who've supported him financially do after this sorts out. So February, March, you look at this, is Cruz in trouble with those guys? Do they want to spend against someone as well-financed as a Mike McCall? And, you know, Cruz could easily win the political primary, but only if he wins the the finance primary. Yeah, and he know, could lose my, the finance you know, primary. Michael now. Huffington ran for the Senate in Cal... You know who Michael Huffington is? He was a non-congressman, <laughs> non-chairman of Homeland Security. It's a different case. You know, you spend $35 million on a Senate race and lose. It is possible that the second richest member of Congress can also run in a primary against Ted Cruz, and his riches mean nothing. Point taken, but Michael Huffington was never even elected to a city council. McCall's got some As you know, shops. I occasionally speak to rich people. Right. And so I talk to rich people who are also political donors. Right. And these are people who are of a Republican And they're all in love with Cruz and they're going to come home. They're, no, the point is the reverse. Right. That's my they're point. They're not in love with Cruz. You say, they say well, you privately they say, well, you know, Mike McCall, I mean, uh, Ted Cruz is a little, little more conservative probably than my, my taste. So are you going to spend money against him for fund the primary fund? Oh, I couldn't. No, but are you going to support him? He has to raise money. McCall doesn't. Yeah, but I just think that the fear of not supporting an incumbent, what if you bet wrong? Well, the other problem Cruz has going forward, and we've talked about this, the other, the biggest political problem in a re-election race is he's got to convince Texas voters he wants to be a senator for six years which and isn't and isn't just running for a lily pad. When you He'll guys, be asked the same question as Marco Rubio right, right now, which is, right. are you going to serve out your entire term? Marco Rubio wouldn't say yes. Want I think Ted Cruz can't real? say right. yes. When you guys have a moment, I'd like to switch subjects. Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about Dan Patrick, uh, lieutenant governor who was at TribFest talking to Ross Ramsey and, you know, made a little news here and there. And then suddenly there was a conversation about Black Lives Matter. What happened, Ross? Uh, he basically said, you know, to condense it, and, you know, this is actually, you know, a reasonable paraphrase of a quote. He basically said that the protesters in Dallas were the reason those police officers were killed, that Black Lives Matter was proximate in the deaths of those police officers. And didn't uh, he was, um, as he has been, completely on the side of the police in this and doesn't acknowledge or didn't acknowledge there really that there was even a problem that those protesters were trying to address. It was, he said, you know, the difference between the way um, 
blacks and Latinos and whites are treated by police is statistically insignificant, and um, he just doesn't buy the premise. What was was there any kind of reaction from the audience? You know, the audience was um, actually sort of quiet. You know, last year Dan Patrick was the opening act at TribFest, mm-hmm. and the Austin audience was relatively liberal yeah, and kind of hostile that, to yeah. him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of cat calls and that kind of thing. This was actually a pretty quiet audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But, you know, he and I talked about this for a good 15 minutes. And, um, you know, a lot of it is stuff you've heard before, but he was um, uh, pretty adamant. I mean, and the, the headline obviously got, you know, the story got a lot of attention on our right. site. I mean, is there is there any political liability at all for, you know, for a white politician basically suggesting that, you know, those police officers were killed over this movement? I don't think so. I think politically it's not, you know, it was not the kind of statement or uh, theme that was out of uh, character for Dan Patrick. Conservatives cheer, liberals light their hair on fire, and we just move on. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's kind of, you know, I don't think it was out of step at all in that regard. Yeah. I mean, did he have any follow-ups or any sort of specifics? I mean, and what was the sort of the gist of the rest of the conversation? Uh, You know, we touched on a lot of things. It was one, you know, it was a fairly broad-ranging conversation. On that particular matter, he is, you know, I mean, he's kind of dug in. Um, and, you know, puts it on the protesters much more than he puts it on the guy who had the guns. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Who, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be someone who was totally mentally unstable. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, it was something to watch. Yeah. All right. Well, Evan, uh, fill us in on your conversation with Ken Starr. A lot of people couldn't even believe that uh, he would show up at TribFest. I mean, my, my nightmare the couple of days prior to uh the festival was that Star did not show, and then my second nightmare was that Star showed up and sat down in a chair, and I asked him a question about what he knew and when he knew it, and he said, "I'm sorry, I can't talk about this. I have a non-disclosure," and so <laughs> right. I had to talk to Star about Whitewater for an hour. <laughs> right. um, to my surprise, Star showed up and was actually engaged in a conversation with me about what happened at Baylor. Now there are people who will say he didn't say very much, or the people who say he contradicted what he had said previously, or contradicted himself even within the hour. And there are certainly people who've said they couldn't believe that he had uh, sympathy as he did for Art Bryles, saying mm-hmm. that Art Bryles was a victim or Art Bryles was a good guy. Art Bryles got a raw deal. What about the women? Um, we have not had Ken Starr on the record without Mary Spath over his shoulder pecking at him and pulling him into the room to tell him what to say, really since this happened. And so there was a public interest right. in having Starr on the record to tell his version of this. I do think we learned some things. What did we learn? Um, I think we learned that uh, despite what everybody assumed had been the case and that Starr himself had said at one point, he did in fact know about some of the alleged sexual assaults prior to the arrest of Samuel Lokuachu in August of 2015, when we thought Starr said and said in fact as recently as June 1st when he was uh, uh, when he stepped down as chancellor, he said to ESPN, you know, if only I had known before the fall of last year, I would have done something. Well, he claimed to me that, in fact, he did know. Um, we know that he insisted that the Title IX uh, requirements, which were not really requirements, but they were strong r- recommendations or requests from the federal government that were put into place in April of 2011, he says they did do work on the Title IX requirements before August of 2014. It is assumed that the Baylor's, one of Baylor's grievous sins in all this was that the university dragged its feet in setting up the Title IX policies and in hiring a dedicated Title IX coordinator. And that was one of the reasons that the problems occurred. He insisted that that was not the case. Um, we also uh, know that uh, Star believes, as the Dallas Morning News editorial board uh, editorialized last week, and as they believe, that there is more information that should be out mm-hmm. from the Pepper Hamilton right. report. That's the Philadelphia law firm that did the investigation um, 
the external review of what had happened and was and excoriated the university. You know, these external reviews, if the university hires somebody to investigate the university, the assumption is always that the client is basically going to control um, the report. Control the report. Right. Yeah. But in fact, the opposite happened here. The Pepper Hamilton report was damning to the university and damning to the culture of the university, particularly in um, resulted in both Browse and Starr no longer being in their jobs. Um, but we've not seen a full release of all the information that Pepper Hamilton amassed during that time period. And there are some who believe that, just like with the OJ case, that the real killer is still out there. Um, and that there are coaches or there are other administrators who were privy to information during all this period and didn't do anything, slow played investigating allegations of sexual assault or maybe even threatened retaliation as the Pepper Hamilton report mm -hmm. suggests again at least against at least one person who was a complainant. And so Starr uh, said uh, point blank, look, I think that there's still more information that the university has got to uh, release. He actually uh, quasi painted himself as a person who resigned his uh, position at the law school or severed his relationship with the university on principle. Hmm. I Wait, could did we no hear something about could, this earlier in the conversation? Yeah, I could no longer Con, stand by and accept the fact that the reasons are not being as transparent as needs to happen. So I had to get I had to leave the university. That's I, an interesting take. I, I'm just left with this impression that, you know, this the people being left out of consideration here or at the back of the line for consideration here are the women who were victimized. Right. You know, in all of the conversations, he referred to these unpleasantries at Baylor as interpersonal violence. Right. Um and you know, said sexual and, assault is and, not endemic. I mean, you know. I, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it sort of puts some blame on, you know, it's off-campus parties where there was drinking. And, you know, all of this is victim blaming in a lot of ways. And it doesn't seem to be, it seemed to be that a lot of the problems at Baylor are that they didn't put the victims in front in the first place. And a lot of the problems continuing are that they're not in the front now. Right. Or these, you know, theories that these young women are basically, you know, being chastised for coming right. forward to, to report this stuff because they are, or there was alcohol involved. Right. I mean, it's really horrifying. Why do you think he did this? Why, what was the advantage to Star of coming out and talking about this stuff? I, I, think I mean, there's, he, a, there's I, I a, think a giant cloud of liability hanging the, the out there. Ar right? The argument that I made to him in persuading him to come was the answer I'll give you to this question. Your story is going to be told. You can tell it or somebody else can tell it. If somebody else tells it, you have absolutely no control over the way it's told. If you tell it, you may not get the outcome you like, but at least you've contributed to its telling. By the way, that was the argument I made in some form to Tim Dunn, the chairman of the Empower Texans and Texans for Fiscal Responsibility Board as well, somebody who is not inclined ordinarily to sit in front of an audience and answer questions. Right. There's a blank screen, and onto that blank screen, people have a habit of projecting their worst fears and their frustrations, and unless you put something on that screen yourself, then you own the fact that people are going to fill right. in the blanks. Right. And so that was the argument I made to Star, and I think Star, who, like a lot of us, has got a certain amount of vanity, I suspect did not want to allow his story to be told in a way that he did not contribute to. That's my yeah. suspicion. Now, I can't believe he didn't have a nondisclosure, <laughs> and I can't believe that his own lawyer did not tell him not to go. Now, I'm told, I don't know this for sure, but I was told by somebody after the fact Star's lawyer, Mark Lanier, was present in the room, or was, or I was told that Mark Lanier was to have been present in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, you would have wanted that so that when the media turned around and wrote a story about it, you knew you'd been there, you know. Well, I mean, it's not like right. we had video. I mean, you can see it. Yeah. Right. But you know, up, up through and including Anna Marie Cox ripping Ken Starr 10 new assholes at the end, uh, uh, last question from the room.
Oh, yeah. A <laughs> right. good moment. Yeah. Uh, all right. I want to, uh, first of all, if you're watching on Facebook, remember that you can ask questions. We've got uh, a few more minutes here. Uh, I want to talk about uh, State Representative Donna Dukes. Uh, obviously, she's been in the hot seat for um, for her sort of questions about her use of staff, her attendance. Uh, she has been absent a lot because of an injury in a car accident. Uh, Ross, what's the latest on her? Uh, she's resigning, and she's going to resign basically by not taking her oath of office in January. So a couple of points here. Um, she's leaving. She says that she attributed her departure to you know problems that arose from this 2013 auto accident. She did have a terrible accident, and you know there was a lot of recovery. There were you know all kinds of things associated with that, and she missed a lot of time in the legislative this most recent legislative session. She's also up against a Texas Rangers investigation that apparently was turned over to the Travis County DA's office last week, uh, and there's a question about whether there's you know some um, legal liability hanging over her for basically uh, using her staff to do things using that her staff in her office for yeah, other than state personal business. reasons, right. babysitting, right. etc. Um, and for you know helping I her with I can use a babysitter this weekend, Patrick. Help, helping her with you know <laughs> events in her district that aren't uh, government things. So. That's going on. You know, it's just been a world of hurt for her since 2013. The way she's quitting um, is interesting. She's still going to be on the ballot in November. Um, it's a Democratic district. She's presumably, um, you know, she's the favorite. And so if she gets reelected, then doesn't take the oath, then the governor will decide when to have another election and this district could go unrepresented in the session. It's also possible, outside possibility, just put an asterisk on it. That Gabriel Nyla, the Republican, wins? Well, it's also possible that Dukes wins and changes her mind. This is not a binding resignation. Could the Republican win? I think it's very difficult for a Republican to win that district. Harold Cook was took to Twitter immediately, said, look, I had a long relationship with Donna. I like Donna. Donna's my friend. I'm a resident of this district, and I'm pretty pissed yeah, off Democrats, at the way this right. went down because now Democrats my district will not be represented in the legislature and in a session in which there are going to be some if serious she, issues. If she do. had quit a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I was going to say that right. only before, added to the frustration. Before the, right. before the deadline, if she had quit a couple of weeks ago, the precinct chairs from this district, the Democratic precinct chairs, would have had the right to replace their missing candidate on, right, the on the ballot. And they could have, right. you know, in the same way that they did in a couple of races can, in Houston. Can I and say... Dukes peak, might have just not been happy with the way those precinct chairs were leaning. Peak, right? peak Austin. Just classic. <laughs> well, it's... Cla uh, no, no, no. This is classic Austin. This is also Houston. Within a few moments after Dallas Donna Dukes and, says she's not running, Cheryl Cole, the former city council right, member right. and mayor pro tem and the former unsuccessful mayoral candidate against Steve Adler and Mike Martinez, puts out a statement through her spokesperson saying, I'm very seriously considering running. Not long after that, Mike Martinez himself, former city councilman, also lives in unsuccessful district, mayoral right. candidate, says, I've been considering whether or not to run, but I've decided that I'm not going to run and I'm going to throw my support behind Cheryl. Mm -hmm. So the statesman then editorializes, this is great. This is harmony. Mike Martinez and Cheryl Cole have avoided a fight. That's a great thing. And then everybody goes batshit over this because they say, who died and anointed Cheryl Cole the success? Why do we only get to have one candidate? Yeah, right. Right. Joe Deschatel well, Jr. might run for the Everybody first. is right. flipping out over this idea that somehow we're foreclosing on the outcome of this special before we even have it. Right. Well, I do want to understand. So uh, David Brockman asks, does this leave Duke's district without representation in the 2017 legislative session? So how, if she so, resigns, so, yes. So how does the timing play out? Well, it depends on the governor and it depends on how they do it. When Joe Moreno, who was a House member from Houston, was killed in a car accident, uh, the 
special election to replace him was delayed long enough that that district went through a session without a representative. Uh, you could easily do that here. If she's not going to be, if it's not going to be an open seat until January, I think she said January 17th, if it's not going to be an open time. seat until yeah. then, then you've got to have an election, potentially a runoff, and seat somebody before Memorial Day when the session ends. You know, they're... Even if somebody you, you gets that seat. You could do it, but you could also not do even it. Even if, if somebody right. gets that seat, they're going to have a very hard time being effective. You know, and as a practical matter, other Austin representatives will step up and take care of things like low water crossings and stuff that the district actually needs. But the people in that district are going to go without a rep. So is she is she thinking, all right, I'm, I'm going to, you know, say that I'm resigning in January. Uh, I'm going to wait and see what the Travis County DA's office does. And if they come after me, then I'm already, you know, I've resigned right. on my own volition. And if they don't come after me oh maybe i'll change my mind See, here's, here's like two well, steps ahead of here's, the popo here's, here's another, here's well, another I don't know. Play, i'm though. asking i mean why would she do this to her party if not here's another play here's another possible play the travis da looks at whatever the texas rangers gave them says hmm, this is interesting let's take it to a grand jury grand jury does something you get to november donna dukes is still on the ballot with a republican opponent dukes is discredited the republican mm -hmm. opponent wins the district has a representative in place in january mm -hmm. and we sail off into the sunset no special election. So what's so? Why does she then? Why would she give a Republican a window of opening? Because she thinks that it. I I, I I I believe that she thinks. I, she hadn't told me this, but the Democrats think they've got this in the bag, mm -hmm. and she thinks she's controlling the outcome in some way. She mm -hmm. didn't give it to the precinct chair. She yeah. thinks the district. She can anoint somebody or the candidate man, of her man, choice. The, can the go minute through. you think you have it in the bag, right? Yeah, the your whole dead. develops in the bag. Mm -hmm. I, you know, how often has this happened? The Republican John a, Lujan, right? The Republican has a right? much better. Oh, Joe Frias is retiring. Right. We got this. I got this. The Republicans have right? a much better hand here than they would have had if she'd done it, you know, three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Crackers. All right. Well, to wrap up, I want each of you to tell me your single favorite moment from the Tribune Festival. I'll go first. I like Thanks. the. I like, <laughs> we're the same. That's a wall. This was an underrated moment. Uh, I think it was just some just some dry humor. But Doug Deason, who's a big Republican finance type on the, the donor panel, was uh, reflecting on how he once gave a big donation to a, a, Perry, a pro Rick Perry Super PAC, and he said that we gave them goals. They didn't meet the goals, and now we all know how that ended. He's dancing. <laughs> so, and that was like to me that That's was just one. perfect. So. Good one. Sylvester Turner's uh, analogy about. Uh, companies going to the legislature when they can't win at the city is, you know, you ask mom, mom says no, you go ask dad. The parents got to get together or we're not going to be able to parent these children. I, I thought that was pretty great. Yeah. This was not something that happened on stage, but it was just a fun time. You know, I want to put as many of the people who run the state of Texas together on stage and in a room and on a campus over the course of this weekend because I do believe, as corny as it sounds, that the mission of the Tribune, which is a public service mission to get more people talking about this stuff, is best achieved when you just get all the people who make those decisions in the same room. So I was waiting backstage before the Tim Dunn panel, and it was Tim Dunn and me. And Jonathan Stickland had traveled with Tim Dunn, I guess, a portion of the way. And so it was Stickland and Dunn. And then all of a sudden, Connie Burton's panel, which was in the same room that the Dunn panel was going to be in, ended. And so Connie Burton shows up with Christopher Paxton from her staff, who is Ken Paxton's son, and Elliot Griffin, her chief of staff. Not, not related. Christopher Paxton is not Ken Paxton's son? No. They're, why did I think that they were related? Same last name. <laughs> <laughs> Unrelated. All right, we'll edit that out in post, yeah. right? Sure. And then uh, 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 Bob Hall runs in, mm -hmm. and then Van Taylor runs in. And I looked up and I thought, I'm not the most conservative person in this room. I might want to leave. <laughs> but it was an assemblage of people 
who have, despite the fact that they're not in the majority of the majority, a disproportionate amount of power. And it was interesting to observe, almost in a tribal fashion, the customs and the mores of this group kind of in, uh, in assembly. And I just thought, what a great opportunity to be up close to this and mm-hmm. to understand better what motivates the people and to listen in and to, uh, and, and to, and to take away something from the group that is really driving the conversation. I mean, look, we're very fortunate to get to do the work we do, and I think it's important not to forget that. You know, this event is, a, is, is atypical in terms of being able to collect all those people and put them in one place. The stuff on stage was great, but the stuff that was off stage was almost as interesting to me. My favorite moment was an onstage moment, and it was when Susan Combs said of Troy Frazier, that guy needed to get his ass kicked. <laughs> you know, it was I, a pretty great I was moment. not able to be at that panel because I was doing something that at panel the same was time. Great. It was but great. I heard that panel was great. Yeah. Well, on that note, that's all the time we have. If you have questions or comments, you can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. And on behalf of Evan, Ross, Patrick, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. I'd rather watch Hardball than Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> <laughs>